Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we focus on democratic backsliding in Sri Lanka, or in other words, the move towards autocratic governance that the country has undergone over the past more than one decade. To help us understand and analyze this phenomenon, I am joined today by Professor Eivind Füglerud from the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo. Professor Füglerud is also the keeper of the museum's ethnographic collection from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. But not least, he's worked for many decades now on Sri Lanka, particularly on the civil war, and issues related to this conflict in terms of ethnic relations, political change, and also international migration. Uh, welcome, Eivind, and thank you so much for, for joining us for this talk. Thank you for inviting me. I'll add that among Eivind Füglerud's most recent publications is a book chapter precisely on democratic backsliding in Sri Lanka. It's published in the Routledge Handbook of Autocratization in South Asia that came out in December last year in 2021. That book, I should add, is downloadable for free from anywhere in the world. So interested listeners are hereby encouraged to have a look at this chapter and of course also on, uh, on the handbook as a whole. Now, among observers of South Asia, it's been evident for quite some time now that Sri Lanka has been gradually moving in an autocratic direction under the twin leadership of the Rajapaksa brothers. Even if this movement has been, one would say, uneven and occasionally prone to reversal. So I guess it was in many ways symptomatic that the Sri Lanka government would use the COVID pandemic to impose new restrictions on the media, to intimidate and silence critics, and also to suppress civil society organizations. But before we move to the current situation, let's zoom out a bit and take a brief look at the broader picture. And looking back when I first traveled to Sri Lanka, and that's now close to 20 years ago, um, I, I went there to, to take a break from my travels in India, which I must admit could be on occasion quite tiresome and, and exhausting. But also because I'd heard that Sri Lanka was somewhat of a traveler's paradise in those days. And also today, I mean, if you try to Google Sri Lanka, um, most of your top hits will be these many references to luxury hotels, spectacular tourist spots, wonderful beaches. I know that the country has even been named the number one travel destination in the world recently by, by Lonely Planet. So for, for many listeners who are not into South Asian politics, the name Sri Lanka usually carries much more pleasant associations than what we're dealing with today. I mean, democratic backsliding and political autocratization. Yes, this is no doubt true. It is one of several paradoxes pertaining to the situation in uh, Sri Lanka, I think. The uh, tourist industry, the country's natural beauty and uh, a culture appearing to the Western public as exotic and friendly has served uh, Sri Lankan governments well throughout many decades of uh, turbulence and violence, not only economically, but uh, also when it comes to international branding. Throughout the long civil war, 
the government tried and uh, largely managed to keep uh, the fighting out of the capital, Colombo, and uh, away from the tourist destinations in the southern part of the country. Most tourists who have visited the island probably have no idea that uh, Sri Lanka for long periods has been one of the most violent places on the planet. This situation ties in with other paradoxical strands, one can say. Historically, Sri Lanka was actually never an obvious candidate uh, to end up as an illiberal state. Implementing universal suffrage in uh, 1931, Sri Lanka prides itself of being the oldest democracy in Asia. With a high literacy rate and free education, free healthcare, and uh, around uh, 20% higher per capita income than the South Asian average, Sri Lanka seemed at uh, independence in 1948, well positioned to become a liberal democracy. What we have seen instead, even if the electoral framework still stands, is that uh, development since the mid-1950s has been somewhat of a continuous downward spiral in terms of democratic values and civil rights. The main reason for this development, or at least what one could call its uh, ideological form, has been uh, Buddhism the fate of the Sinhalese-speaking majority population in Sri Lanka. Widely seen in the West as a peaceful and inclusive religion, a politicized Buddhism has in fact helped transform the country into a somewhat of an ethnocratic state where ethnic and religious minorities see themselves as excluded from attaining full citizenship. Mm. And of course, it's also an island, as we talked about, that's been marked by a prolonged uh, civil war. I guess that's also part of the popular perception of Sri Lanka, even though it might be undercommunicated somewhat. In 2009, uh, we saw the conclusion of this almost 30-year-long war between the Sri Lankan government and armed groups uh, fighting for a separate uh, Tamil, Tamil state. To what extent would you say, and also in what ways, is this civil war relevant for these processes of autocratization that, that have a long history, but that are also very much unfolding today? Well, I believe the civil war is uh, relevant in several different ways. Let me mention a couple of things. Firstly, one key word for the face of anti-democratic development we have seen over the last 30 years or so in Sri Lanka is militarization. By militarization, I mean both the implementation of security measures and the institution of particular ideological conceptions. The size of the Sri Lankan army in 1990 was uh, around 20,000 men. Since then, the number of soldiers has increased with uh, somewhere around 300,000. This uh, obviously does something to a society. The majority of these soldiers are located in the north and east, where the minorities, the ethnic minorities, are in uh, majority. The areas traditionally inhabited by Tamils and Muslims have been defined as a threat 
to national security, and they are actually still seen in this way. One report from a couple of years back found that in Mulatibu district within the former war zone, actually the district where the war ended, the military-civilian ratio is still one soldier for every two civilians. This is a, a very heavy military presence. But at the same time, this is not all about security. In uh, the mid-1990s already, the armed forces became the country's single largest employer. It is notable that uh, the number of personnel in the armed forces has increased with almost 100,000 since the end of the war in 2009. There are simply no security reasons for this increase. Rather, providing relatively well-paid employment in the armed forces is a way of gaining political support. To keep uh, soldiers occupied in a country without security threats, that is, post-2009, the army has, uh, since the end of the war, branched out into civilian sectors, involving themselves in all kinds of things, from farming to hotel management, in some places even running kindergartens. With respect to ideological conceptions, what I mean is the idea that the armed forces are not only the most effective organization the country has to offer, but that these soldiers are somehow morally superior to other people. One expression of this conception is the so-called Ranaviru cult, the public celebration of the war heroes that fought the LTTE with great personal sacrifices. Obviously, this complex process of militarization is linked to the build-up of the security apparatus the government saw as necessary to confront its Tamil adversary, the organization called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or LTT for short. LTT was, in fact, uh, and, and there is no doubt about it, a formidable war machine. And to achieve victory, the political ethos of the country was, in a sense, transformed, at least temporarily. Secondly, the war, in particular the last phase, was very important in defining or redefining the country's international relationships. Feeling let down by the human rights-based criticism and economic sanctions from their Western trading partners, the Sri Lankan government from 2006-2007 onwards sought uh, financial support and political backing from China and uh, and also to some extent from Pakistan uh, to mobilize militarily. This uh, strained relationship to Western countries has continued after 2009 mainly because of investigative processes and resolutions initiated in UN fora focusing war crimes committed by government forces during the last phase of the war. The uh, eastern turn, as it has been called, that Sri Lanka has taken has partly to do with realpolitik and uh, economic matters, but I would say that 
uh, it also reflects how Sinhalese in general and Sinhalese politicians in particular perceive the outside world. To speak in simplifying cliches, many Sinhalese suffer from a kind of cultural paranoia, a perception that Sinhalese culture is constantly under threat. The criticism coming from the West regarding how the war was conducted triggered this reactive paranoia. The uh, Sri Lankan government clearly see Western countries criticizing them as being influenced by uh, Tamil diaspora supporting the LTTE. UN reports have suggested that as many as uh, between 40,000 and 70,000 civilians were killed during the last months of the war, most of them by government forces. Mahinda Rajapaksa, the former president, on the other hand, stated in 2010 that Sri Lanka's army had been involved in a humanitarian operation, fighting with a gun in one hand and the declaration of human rights in the other, as he said in one speech to the parliament. And he also claimed that not one single civilian life had been lost during this humanitarian operation. So the understanding of what happened are indeed very different. However, all of this being said, the war is, in my opinion, not the primary cause of autocratic developments in Sri Lanka. If we speak in uh, historical terms, we need to look at why the war started in the first place. What we find is that uh, politicians shaped uh, Sinhala Buddhist ethno-nationalism in the 1950s as a strategy of securing votes from the majority community. Based on uh, chronicles from the 6th century narrating how Gautama Buddha on his death named Lanka as the place where his doctrine should be protected. The Buddhist order in Sri Lanka see themselves as keepers of authentic Buddhism. In the 1950s, this religious legacy was politicized and used to defend the marginalization of ethnic and religious minorities, leading to protests and finally to civil war. This, in my opinion, is the source of Sri Lanka's misery. What is significant in the present situation is that the militarization and the majoritarian approach to politics did not subside after the LTT was eliminated in 2009. Rather than using the opportunity to reconcile and build a new inclusive consensus, the Rajapaksa regime continued to regard the ethnic and religious minorities as a threat to Sinhalese culture, now shifting the focus onto the Muslim community. This is a paradox, actually, since the Muslims never supported the Tamil cause during the war. The anti-Muslim hate that has been nurtured by the government and its allies since the end of the war is an indication of the narrow understanding of national identity that is now predominant within the Sinhalese community. This is very interesting. And as uh, as someone who works on primarily on on India, of course, at at many levels, uh, there seems to be some 
quite obvious parallels in in the ways in which forms of democratic backsliding are unfolding in different parts of South Asia. Uh, what you call the cultural paranoia or a, a demographic majority actually feeling that it's under threat either from internal or external enemies. And also, of course, this increasing stigmatization of the Muslim community that you mentioned here towards the end, which is also something that we've we've seen in, in India, for example, for a very long time. And as we know, there are other states in South Asia which have similar issues with a strong militarization of society as a whole. One doesn't have to look uh, look very far from Sri Lanka. So it's it's obviously a very very complicated mix of ingredients that go into these processes of transforming governance in, in autocratic directions. Um, but what I wanted to hear a bit more about is perhaps the Rajapaksa regime that you touched upon here towards the end. I mean, this is something that I think I see observers tending to agree upon, that this more recent democratic backsliding in Sri Lanka is somehow related to what we often call dynastic politics. And in particular, here, as you mentioned, the coming into power of the Rajapaksa family. Could you I mean, just give us a brief outline of who are the key figures in this crucially important family? And, and how, how do you see the Rajapaksa dynasty having so far played the game of politics in Sri Lanka? Yes, I, I agree that the time that the Rajapaksas have been in power constitutes a distinct period in what may be called the history of autocracy in Sri Lanka. It is not that dynastic politics was unknown earlier, but the Rajapaksa family has definitely taken it to a new level, we can say. At present, uh, there are five members of the family in the cabinet, including the president, holding nine minister posts between them, including the Minister of Defense and the Minister of Finance. And in addition, one family member holds a, what is called in Sri Lanka a non-cabinet post of state minister. And it has been suggested by observers that uh, the family controls something like 70 personally controls something like 75% of the national budget uh, through these uh, minister posts. And this concentration of power is, of course, a significant aspect of what we discuss under the name of autocratization. In my chapter in Routledge uh, Handbook, I have used the anthropologist Bruce Kapfer's concept of the oligarchic corporate state to describe the situation. It fits rather well in my opinion. Through their personalized control over state functions and their alliances with business interests and the armed forces, the Rajapaksa clan is in the process of transforming the Sri Lankan state into a corporation based on personal associations, patronage, and uh, loyalty to the leading family. When it comes to who the main people are, if we simplify the matter somewhat, we can say that the two key figures in the family are the two brothers, Mahinda and Gotabaya Rajapaksa. The former 
was uh, president between 2005 and 2015 and uh, is now prime minister. The latter was defense secretary during his brother Mahinda's period as president and is now himself president since 2019. The two and uh, the seven siblings are children of Don Alvin Rajapaksa, who as a member of parliament followed Solomon Bandaranaike when he broke with the United National Party and established the Sri Lanka Freedom Party in 1951. Don Alvin was himself the son of a man called Don David Rajapaksa, who was a village headman in uh, the Hambantota area during British times. So the two brothers, Mahinda and Gotabaya, come from a family of local power holders moving into national politics through the Sri Lankan Freedom Party until very recently one of the two major political parties in Sri Lanka. After his father, Don Alvin, died in 1967, Mahinda was nominated as the party's candidate in his place and won a seat in 1970 as the youngest member of parliament. Over the next 35 years, he made a career in the party, the Sri Lankan Freedom Party, while at the same time educating himself and later practicing periodically as a lawyer. He became prime minister in 2004 and was appointed as presidential candidate by his party for the election in 2005, which he won. And he won mainly because the LTTE, who at that time controlled large parts of the country, prevented Tamil voters who clearly would have preferred the other candidate from voting. When it comes to his younger brother, Gotabaya, the current president, he uh, joined the military in uh, 1971 and took part in operations against both the LTT and the JVP, the Maoist rebels in the south. He retired from the military in 1998 and emigrated to the USA, where he became an American citizen. So Gotabaya had no previous experience as an elected politician before he was elected president. He only returned to Sri Lanka from the U.S. after Mahinda became president in 2005 to take charge of the Ministry of Defense. The rest, as they say, is uh, is history. What followed was, on the one hand, military mobilization in order to confront the LTTE. On the other, what we saw was uh, rapidly deteriorating human rights situation in the country as a whole accompanied by corruption, megalomania, and a more explicit and radical Sinhala Buddhist majoritarianism than the country had seen before, which I can add is also a kind of a paradox because Mahinda, as a lawyer, before he became prime minister, was actually uh, a strong defender of human rights in Sri Lanka, especially during the what is called the Second 
JVP revolt in 1989 and 1990. And he even went to uh, the Human Rights Council in Geneva to protest uh, or to get the attention of the international community about uh, human rights uh, violations in Sri Lanka at that time. So he has gone through a transformation, one could say. It is perhaps also worth noting that Norway played a small part in his coming to power in uh, 2005 as a facilitator of the so-called peace process starting in the late 1990s and resulting in a ceasefire agreement between the government and the LTT in 2002. This is a long and complicated story, but the short version is that the campaign against the ceasefire agreement, which was seen by many Sinhalese as favoring the LTT, helped uh, bring Mahinda to power as president in 2005 with uh, the support of extreme Sinhala Buddhist groups. His election brought what has been called the lunatic fringe of Buddhist extremists into the center of national politics in Sri Lanka. So inadvertently, Norway actually helped Mahinda coming to power. You mentioned earlier in narrating this, this longer history of the Rajapaksa family that the rest is history, you said. Maybe we could turn to this more recent history as we move towards the end of this episode. If I look back a couple of years to to the 2019 presidential elections, at that time, I, I recall that we had invited you and some other people to an event in Oslo discussing this coming election and the prospects of different candidates and also uh, to reflect upon the different possible outcomes and their consequences for different groups of people in Sri Lanka. And uh, it's a couple of years ago now, of course, but I, I do remember some genuine apprehension and real concern among people at the time what an election of Gotabaya Rajapaksa would mean for Sri Lanka, not just as a state, but also as, as a society. So if, if we look at this more recent history and, and at, at the present we're living in now, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who, as you mentioned, was Secretary of Defense, was indeed elected president in November 2019. What were the specific circumstances that brought him to power? I mean, you've just spoken about the so-called lunatic fringe moving into the center of national politics. What were the circumstances that created this space for Gotabaya Rajapaksa to win? And related to this, of course, how has he made use of this power since? I mean, he's been in power now for, for, for just over two years. Well, first of all, Gotabaya became a candidate in the election because after being elected in 2005 and re-elected in 2010, his brother Mahinda Rajapaksa could, according to the constitution, not run for a third time. After his re-election in 2010, Mahinda actually removed this two-period limitation through what is called the 18th Amendment of the Constitution, but the two-period limitation was then again reimposed by the 19th Amendment in 
2015 after Mahinda lost the election that year. So Gotabaya was probably chosen as a candidate by the family, by the Rajapaksa family, because they thought that he would be the member able to attract uh, most votes due to his fame as the man who had uh, defeated the LTTE militarily. When it comes to why he was elected and uh, president and, and won the election, I believe it comes down to mainly two factors. One is the very poor performance of President Sirisena, who managed to win over Mahinda in the 2015 election. The government that was in power between 2015 and 2019 was in many ways a disaster, actually. But the other factor that brought Gotabaya to power was probably the the national focus on security especially after the muslim extremist terror attacks against hotels and churches on easter sunday in 2019 that killed 267 people gotabaya announced himself as a candidate for the presidential election shortly after these attacks and very consciously used his military experience in his election campaign coming forward or projecting himself as a strong man able to protect his people and his country. I can add perhaps that many see this as not being accidental. In Sri Lanka, people speculate openly about the possibility that officers from the military intelligence and perhaps even Gotabaya himself had a hand in the attacks. For example, the Catholic Cardinal of Colombo, Malcolm Ranjit, has indicated on several occasions. The focus on security is also relevant to how the president has used his power. One of the main points of criticism from the Rajapaksa clan against President Sirisena and his so-called national unity government that held power between 2015 and 2019 was their undermining of the position of the military. They were particularly critical of the government's support for the Geneva Human Rights Council resolution number 31, as it is named, adopted in 2015, calling for investigation of war crimes committed by the Sri Lankan army during the last phase of the war. In his election campaign, Gotabaya promised to rebuild the strength and status of the armed forces. And one must say that on this promise, he has certainly delivered since his election. The president has used his power to pardon a number of military officers convicted of crimes, thereby continuing Sri Lanka's long tradition of impunity for military personnel. Further, during the first six to seven months of his presidency, he took a number of steps to provide the armed forces a new role in the governance of the country. 
one of his first political decisions was to establish a special presidential commission mandated to inquire into and collect information on investigative agencies he claimed had been falsely accusing public officers, including military officers, of criminal activities under the previous government. What this means is that the police and the state attorney, attorney's office and so on, and also special commissions that under the previous government had investigated corruption and other crimes, was now or were now to be themselves investigated. The uh, commission established by Gotabaya was given broad powers and it used its authority to order the Attorney General's Department not to proceed with several cases against politicians and security personnel pending in court. In terms of public administration, a large number of civilian government services were soon after the election of the new president brought under the control of the Ministry of Defence. Also, in a matter of months, the president established seven different presidential task forces, as they are called, several of them led by military officers. Common to all of these task forces are their very broad and vague powers, and the fact that they circumvent accountability of government ministries by reporting directly to the president. They thereby operate outside the normal chain of political command, one could say. One task force headed by the defense secretary is mandated to survey and take measures to preserve archaeological sites in the eastern province. Despite the complex demography of the eastern province, all members of the task force appointed by the president are Singalese. And this may perhaps sound innocent or uninteresting, the, the, the matter of archaeological sites, but the importance of this task force lies in the fact that spokespersons or representatives of the Tamil and Muslim communities in Sri Lanka claim that consecutive governments for decades have used archaeological findings as a pretext to mark locations as Buddhist sites in order to promote what we may call sinhalization of areas traditionally dominated by the ethnic minorities. So this actually ties in with a large and complex issue in in Sri Lanka and the idea held by many Buddhist Sinhalese groups that Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country and is only for them. So this whole issue makes archaeology a very sensitive and important question in uh, Sri Lanka. Another task force led by Nanasara Teru, the general secretary of the extremist Buddhist organization Bodhubalasena, which for all practical purposes is an ethno-nationalist and anti-Muslim fascist organization, I would say, 
is mandated to suggest legal amendments in order to develop one civil law for all ethnic community. What this sums up to is actually a picture of, I would say, one power being concentrated in and around the president and a small circle of his military friends and allies. And two, this concentration of power being legitimated with reference to the sole interests of the Sinhala Buddhist community. To what extent it actually serves the real interest of the Sinhalese community is, is of course, a, a different matter altogether. It's interesting that you pick up on this issue of archaeology and its centrality to these nationalist autocratic projects. I, I recall when when I began taking a more sort of academic interest in India many years ago, one of the things that soon becomes obvious is precisely how important history, material, cultural histories and archaeological sites to the construction of, of these uh, different kinds of nationalism or hyper-nationalism we, we may call and it's uh, something that, by looking at India today, is no less evident there, this intense preoccupation with archaeological and historical sites and their sort of original use going back in, in history. But this, what you said now, of course, brings us to what is arguably the million-dollar question. What now? Or what next, in other words? I mean, the Rajapaksa clan, as you call them, have now been ensconed in power in one way or the other now for many many years indeed if we count the sort of the extended family going back we are speaking about many many decades and you mentioned now this further concentration of power around the president and his inner circle it does seem unlikely in light of this that we should see a reversal of this kind of autocratization anytime soon but what's, what's your assessment of the situation? What does the near future look like from your point of observation? The answer to this question is, is very uncertain at the moment, I would say, mainly because the new president and his government has in fact become very unpopular and very fast also among the people who voted for him two years back. The uh, economy has gone down, prices have gone up, the number of people sinking below the level of poverty has increased significantly. Fuel and food items are increasingly in short supply. Part of this, of course, is because of the corona pandemic, which has undermined the tourist industry completely and has made uh, work migration difficult, both of which are, have been very important economic uh, sources for Sri Lanka on the national level. But uh, I would say they have also become unpopular because the uh, pandemic and uh, problems that it has brought have not been handled well. And this is important politically because ahead of the presidential election, Gotabaya actually projected himself as uh, somewhat of a non-political politician, to put it that way, who would solve the country's problems by military efficiency and technocratic competence. 
And it seems that now, finally, people have started asking themselves where the logic is in, in giving the commander of the army the responsibility of fighting disease, the corona pandemic. And this is not the only questionable decision that the president has made. For example, just to mention one thing, some time back, he overnight decided to ban the import of chemical fertilizer, causing big problems to farmers and probably ruining the coming rice harvest. And most experts, of course, have denounced this as completely incompetent. My assessment is that if there was another presidential election tomorrow, Gotabaya would not win. Of course, many things can happen before the next election in 2024. But if the situation is the same or worse, it will be very interesting to see what happens. On the one hand, his chance of winning will be very slim indeed, I would say. On the other, it is very difficult to imagine that the Rajapaksa establishment and their military allies will be willing to hand over the power to someone else, among other reasons, because many of them will then probably face prosecution. So some experts already speculate that Sri Lanka will move in the direction of Myanmar. What is certain is that it will be a real test for what remain of democratic institutions in Sri Lanka. Oivin Fugleru, thank you so much for joining us and for shedding light on the democratic backsliding that is unfolding in Sri Lanka. Uh, listeners with an interest in this theme, both within Sri Lanka, but also in the wider South Asian context, are encouraged to have a look at Oivin's contribution to the Routledge Handbook of Autocratization in South Asia, available open access online. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.